0: Good One is sponsored by Vulture Festival, vulture.com's annual pop culture extravaganza. Events include Aziz Ansari, Stephen Colbert, Connie Britton, Sarah Jessica Parker, The Carmichael Show, Chelsea Handler, and many more. Vulture Festival will be held in New York City May 20th and 21st. Buy tickets and find more information at vulturefestival.com. Hi, hello, hey, this is Good One, Vulture's podcast about jokes and those who tell them. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. And each week, I have a comedian, comedy writer, or director on to play and talk about one of their jokes. This is another bonus episode. Are all episodes going to be bonus episodes from now on? No. Are you sure? I don't know, man. I think so. Oh, you know, let's not worry about the future and just live in the moment. So wait, what are we talking about? Oh, yes, this episode of Good One and its guest, Moshe Kasher, whose new show, Problematic, is currently airing Tuesday nights on Comedy Central. Moshe picked a perfect joke for this show because he actually recorded it two different times in his career, once in 2009, for his record, Everybody You Know Is Going To Die, and then You Are, and then again in 2013, for his Live From Oakland stand-up special. This show is often about how jokes change and grow over time, and now you'll get to hear exactly that. And by now, I mean like, like right now. Like the jokes are going to play right at the end of this sentence, and then Moshe and I will talk about it, and much more and much less, and everything in between, sentence over.
1: I went to, uh, I went to Barcelona, I went to uh, Spain, and, uh, I gotta tell you, I, um, I, I believe in God, but, like, I recognize that it's a little ridiculous to do so, you know? Like, I, I, and I hate talking about God, like, I hate, I hate talking to Christians about God. Christians are the worst people to talk about God, because they're just, they're so like, oh, it's all about us, you know? It's like, Christian, 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 if you don't hang out with us, you're gonna go to hell. If you don't become a Christian, you're going to hell. It's like, the ironic twist of that is, if I envision what hell would look like for me personally, it's definitely hanging out with Christians for all eternity. <laughs> right? I mean, it does, that's not pleasant. Like, oh, I play a harp with the biggest loser in the world. And what do you play, your contemporary Christian rock for me, doesn't this sound nice? No, it fucking doesn't sound nice. Why do you think that this is music that will compel people to join your religion? This is clear evidence that God hates you. It's just the worst music. It's not good music, it's not. Anyway, here's a way to think about it. You don't go to hell for laughing at the jokes. I go to hell for writing them. And I was going to go there anyway because I'm a Jew. That's where we end up. Oh, I didn't make that rule up. That's a Christian rule. I'm just reporting it back to you. And let me clarify, I'm not anti-Christian. I think Christians are very, very friendly people. They help you move. I think that's very important. Hey, buddy, you want to do some service? (laughs) But that's their thing, isn't it, is heaven and hell. Like, every religion has its themes that it works with, you know? Like the Buddhists have tofu and marijuana, the Jews have gold and money, the Muslims have submission and high-grade explosive. We all have our thing. And the Christian thing is heaven and hell. Like, only we get to go to heaven, everybody else has to go to hell. Tough rule, I know. Born lucky, I guess. But the ironic twist of that rule is if I envision what my own personal hell looks like, it's definitely hanging out with nothing but Christians for all eternity. (laughs) Listening to contemporary Christian rock music. Why? Why? Why would they think that that's music that will compel people to join their religion? If you play it backward, you can hear God screaming, no! Not in my name. I mean, they had beautiful Christian music. That's the thing I don't understand. They had the most beautiful religious music ever was Christian music, like gospel music and Byzantine chanting. Like, ah. Now it's like, me and Jesus eat a sandwich. In the back of my pickup truck. Okay. I guess I'll join up then. Based on your pithy little song. But I don't even care, actually. I don't care about getting into heaven because heaven doesn't sound that much greater than hell in comparison. I don't want to go to hell, but I don't feel like they've gone into enough detail about how awesome heaven will be in comparison to the volumes of detail of how terrible hell will be. Like, I would like you to give me more information. Give me, I want specific information on the prizes that I win when I get to heaven. I want to know. There's an endless fountain of gin and Oxycontin in the center of town. and you no longer have addiction issues, so drink up, buddy. I wanna know, there's a free Cadillac Escalade for everyone in heaven, and you don't look weird driving them if you're white. I want to know. But all they do is tell you about the negative parts of hell, like if you've read Dante's Inferno, which I have because I'm smarter than all of you. you will know that there are very intricate descriptions of what hell is like. Like the, the first, there's layers. So like the first layer is a, a river of boiling shit that you swim in for a thousand years. And the second layer, you eat rust for a thousand years. Then the third layer, you sh- shit the rust out into a riverbed. It's very painful. I'm like, I'm totally convinced. I don't want to go. What do I get if I'm good? What do I get in heaven? They're like, a harp. <laughs> a harp? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like if you sacrifice the important things you need to sacrifice in life in order to get to heaven, like marijuana and anonymous blowjobs, and you get up there, and it's exactly how they envisioned it for you in the cartoons, like, hey, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this was real. I always imagined this was some sort of metaphor. No? Okay. You're going to give it a good college try because you got into heaven after all. You're a good person. You go, I guess I'll hang in there, see what happens. (laughs) 5,000 years goes by, I'm still plucking. Is this it? Is this all there is to heaven? No, there's one more treat. You get to hang out with your family forever. Oh, that sounds great. You remember the last time you spent the afternoon with your mom? Yeah, you remember that moment when you're like, I got to get out of here now. That's when forever begins. With your mom on the cloud next to you, looking over at you, complaining about your harp-playing skills, how you don't play the harp that great anyway, how your brother used to get straight A's when he played the harp. Nobody wants to see you on stage telling jokes!
0: I'm here with the man behind that joke, uh, Mr. Moshe Kasher.
1: The Man Behind the Harp. <laughs> man Behind the Harp That's your title. <laughs> I haven't heard that joke in, in years. I would say that joke uh, was a career-defining joke. But the first clip you played, man, I, I, I was really shocked with how half-baked it was. <laughs>
0: you know, it, it's so rare to we, we have such discrete versions of the joke to kind of reference. Yeah. The first one's from your first album, which uh, came out in 2009, but I feel like it was recorded in 2008. And then the other one was from your first special, uh, which came out in 2013. So, you know, it's like I'm really interested in those 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 four years. So in the original joke, you have the main point, which is your idea of hell is what people think heaven is. Yes. And uh, there's the hard part. And Christian rock is bad. Right. <laughs> uh, but there's there's not, not even, even like my... what?
1: That... Like a punchline. Is that the word you're looking for? Look, I can tell what's happening in there. I, I realize it re-listening to it. I had a nascent idea for a bit and I was feeling myself. That's what it was. I was it was my first album. Things were going really good. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try soft shoeing some stuff. <laughs> because, like, the Barcelona bit, I, I, I remember doing it. I don't think I've told it ever before or since. It wasn't really a bit, it was just kind of like a story of something I yeah. saw in Barcelona. And that was the setup to that thing. And I was just kind of like freewheeling, doing my thing. But I will say that I have always been fascinated with the notion. That one of the main facets of Christian Christian dogma is that they are the only ones that get to heaven, because that they're the, as far as I know they're really the only religion that believes that. So that 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 was always a fascination of Christian dogma is that they could believe that. So, but you kept on
0: doing it. So after you performed it, then you must have known like the joke isn't finished. So what were you
1: thinking about the section of the material, you know, kind of going forward? I clearly knew it wasn't done because it became truly that bit, as you as you could hear, it was long and sophisticated and not to toot my own horn or, or pluck my own heart, but, <coughs> you know, it turned into a really, like, highly structured, kind of big, meaty bit. Yeah. It became, yeah, like the backbone of my set was that. And I remember... Also, being really struck when I read Dante 's Inferno in college about how intricate the detail structure was, so I remember like always wanting to do something about that, like how much detail they went into, And, and then I, I guess I, I, I thought about the vagueness and the kind of cartoonishness of what the the vision of heaven was. like truly, that's all that, all that they really give you is like you spend time with the people you love, it's paradise. And then the harp thing is obviously an absurd caricature of what people think.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, harps are a good example of that. You know, it, it's interesting. It's interesting because it's like we have just that line, and not only do you build out, but you everything you build out, you then you know build out. It's like you have this seed of of this joke, and and it has branches out, and then those branches have
1: branches. Oh, that's interesting. It's kind of a, a tangential festival. Yeah, because
0: yeah, it's like, oh, I have this Christian rock sentence. Yeah. I could do a full minute on Christian rock. Or, you know, over the course of those four years, you know, how is your process, you know, in maturing a thing like this?
1: Well, I I think part of the problem of co- comedians doing uh, specials every uh, every year, for me anyway, is like, you know, when the masters do it, it's like, okay, I guess go for it. You know, I, but when people feel the need to do it and they aren't at, at the like top of the top of the top level, I think bits don't get to cook long enough. And sometimes you know that bit clearly needed to cook. It took four years to really fully perfect and master and get it to the point that it was like a full, I remember there, were, I actually remember that there were parts of that bit that didn't make it in. I, the song originally was longer. Yeah. Me and Jesus eat a sandwich in the back of my pickup trip. Let me see. Let me see if I can remember the the lyrics of the full version. It was not funny. I will warn you. I mean, it was kind of funny, but it was very stupid. It was me and Jesus eat a sandwich in the back of my pickup truck. But I was so hungry. Eat a man-witch. I don't know. But Jesus, he just didn't give a fuck. And I was so something that I looked down. And Jesus... Wait, I was so sad that I looked down. Something... (laughs) It w- <laughs> i don't know There was this whole longer version of the song that was so i tried that a couple times people are like what so hungry eat a sandwich." So was there a semicolon in there like anyway me and Jay's eat a sandwich what was the- I-, I at any rate the song at some point was longer and i you know what's the thing about Chris- i can remember the the thought that led to each part of the bit yeah. you know i remember being the idea that christians born lucky i guess was from I, my my stepfather. My mother's second husband has family that are evangelical Christians. And I remember they always, it was like a, every time we'd go visit them, it would be this like, because my brother is religious, and it would be this like, you know, sort of ecumenical council of like, you know, uh, 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 back and forth. And uh, my I asked them, I remember the kids, like, well, how do you just, I remember being really fascinated by this idea of like the justification that Christians can have of being born into a family that allows the belief in their faith to be so easy whereas a person in who's born into a muslim or or pagan or amazonian family must overcome all of the circumstances of their birth in order to get to faith why did they get why are they so virtuous that they get such an easy path to heaven and you know the Yanomami people in Brazil, you know, they have to like not only find out about Christianity, but then believe in it and then become it. And it, I remember it really kind of threw them for a loop too. So I was like, I thought that was a funny line born lucky, I guess. Yeah. The one
0: line that is in both is the sort of thesis of the joke. You say different things, but they're slightly different. I will read back, and you can tell me how intentional it was or was not. This feels so, like a deposition. I know, all right? In 2009, you say, now, the ironic <laughs> twist of that is, if I envisioned what hell would look like, for me personally, it's definitely hanging out with Christians for all eternity. And then in 2013, it goes, the, the ironic twist of that rule, if I envision what my own personal hell looks like, it's definitely hanging out with nothing but Christians for all eternity.
1: It softened a bit, hasn't it? Yeah. I realized in the beginning, it was a lot harsher, too. It just sounded a little bit more... I mean, the, the bit's harsh, and it's a little... Uh, you know, I do this arrogant guy on stage, so I'm I'm not a soft comedian, but I, in the beginning, probably because it was undeveloped, it just sounded like a bunch of, you know, just horrible attacks. Yeah, it's also just
0: more conversational, but, you know, is... Did you intentionally change the wording of it, or do you think it just, like, as your persona was sort of sh- coming into f- focus,
1: the words kind of followed. I think that, no, I did not intentionally change it, but I think it's more precise. You know, if I was to talk about what my own personal hell would look like, I think that's a more interesting and colorful idea. And then nothing but Christians for All Eternity, I think is a more soft and yeah less harsh for, <sighs> reality. It's like, uh, you know, the first part is, just, I don't want to be around Christians. Yeah. That's what that sounds yeah, like. Yeah. And that's not that's not it. And in fact, I softened it further, right? Yeah. Which is, I'm not anti-Christian. I'm not. I think Christians are very friendly people. They help you move. Yeah. I think that's very important. Yeah. It sort so, of
0: like brings them back in.
1: Yeah, yeah, because the reality of a stand-up comedian touring through the country is <laughs> the two-thirds of the people that you're performing in front of are Christians. Yeah. So you have to find a way to get them to laugh the whole time. And yeah. they can. You know, there's a lot of little back and forths, pushes and pulls, like... Terrible Christian music. You had great music. Yes. It was great <laughs> yes. music. There was this beautiful cr- gospel. And so it's really it becomes about the specifics of the absurdity of the music and the absurdity of the specific dogma. Another specific,
0: and this may be even more absurd to bring up, but in a earlier version, when you're talking about harps, you're like, you have to sacrifice marijuana. And in the earlier version, you go, and going to raves. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> and uh-huh. now in the, <laughs> the recorded <laughs> yeah. version, it is marijuana and anonymous blowjobs
1: so why is blowjobs funnier than raves okay so a that's a that's the worst question you've asked so far (laughs) um i think that's pretty obvious yes no i guess raves actually technically is is, could be thought of as slightly funnier but first of all i think that's a callback to another joke it's possible the the clip because the clip doesn't show i I think it is because there's another joke that i do about Another true cashier classic about how I would rather be gay, uh, mm-hmm. about how awesome being gay is because, and it's this whole bit about anonymous cruising uh, sure. parks. Yes. How amazing it is that there's a bush, you can walk up, there are certain parks you can walk up to a bush, <laughs> any bush, and there's a man inside of that bush waiting to give you a blowjob. Right? He doesn't care what you look like, he's just waiting in there like a... Like a duck waiting for a foie gras feeding tube. Blah 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 blah. Sure, sure. So the point of it all is, sorry to, uh, I know people are blushing right now. But the point, of, I think that that's what I was getting at, was yeah. that that that's you're giving yeah. up that thing, that awesome thing that we discussed earlier. It's a mini callback because it's not like usually a callback. I've never been very good at callbacks. Yeah, but usually a callback gets you this big. Like,
0: oh no, he didn't. In between the two, you wrote and released your memoir, Casher and mm-hmm. the Rye. Which you've said, you're, you're, you're the thing that you're most proud of. That right, is what, true. What did you learn? Although I just reheard that bit and I'm feeling, now, I'm leaning towards <laughs> that bit. Yeah. What did you learn about writing and writing comedy and how did your comedy change just from the fact that you wrote that and also the process of writing that?
1: Well, you know, I, what I wrote in that book was very different stylistically than what I, uh, obviously, than the stand-up. I mean, first of all, when I was a young man, when I was a kid, I never dreamed of being a stand-up comedian, but I did dream of writing a book and uh when i got the book deal i was very i was very interested in writing a book that wasn't as i call them take a shit books mm-hmm. <laughs> you know these like a lot of these comedians you read their book and it's like oh okay so you got like a book deal and then you just like we're like oh i gotta i gotta fill in 200 <laughs> pages what, yeah. what should i do here i was very I, I wasn't interested in doing that i really wanted to like give also because it was my life story it wasn't just like a a humorist you know little here's some bits but um so that was a whole other process than stand-up ever was it was sitting down two pages a day that's how i did it i would try to write two pages a day and if i missed the day i'd write four and you know also there was this whole process of memory which was really interesting as 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 far as memoirs go that like memory is such an interesting thing as i say in the foreword of the book is like you don't know how many memories you have until you stop, turn around, and dive into the dark, Mm -hmm. cold water of your deep memories. And the more you get in there, the more you realize, whoa, I remember all these things that are kind of, which is weird. It's like, what are they doing in your brain? If they're there and you never access them and never use them, what are they doing down there? But I definitely was able to do that. But I was also very concerned in making sure that it was a comedy book. And I thought that the comedy in that book, I learned two things. One was that comedy is a really beautiful vehicle to transport sincerity and emotionality in Mm -hmm. on so a lot of what I think the power of that book is there are certain jokes actually if I could I would go in and take out If if I could do another edition I would take certain jokes out that were a little too jokey and a little too crass but generally the book I feel like is Laugh Out Loud Funny until all of a sudden you get to like the middle and you're like, Oh wait a minute, what's happening here? And then by the end you're like, Oh no. You're you've been sort of uh, almost hoodwinked into yeah. coming into like a dark story, which I think is pretty powerful. So
0: the first album you recorded probably like seven or eight years in To comedy? Uh what, you said it was two thousand eight? It was two thousand nine it was released. I feel like it's probably recording. Probably
1: six six years in, yeah. I think. And then
0: so then the the special was about ten years in. Mm-hmm. You are an incredibly different performer in, between the two things. Like the first one is so much slower, and you're like, there's ums. I remember mm-hmm. not in this mm-hmm. joke, but in other ones, there's like you almost have like a Mitch Hedberg cadence, which is not That's something that I associated with. Because listening back, I was like, I, this is not. That's interesting. But it's kind of thing I think like everyone kind of did at that point. And then you're so much faster. Your everything is how did that change? Were there certain moments in those four years where you kind of
1: like, when did I become a fast talking Jew? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. Yeah. I think that as time went on, my bits started to become longer and longer and longer. And that became part of like the signature of who I was as a performer, which isn't great. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's great, but it's not like there's certain things it's really not made for like late night TV. I'm (laughs) not not, like built for that Mm -hmm. because you know, that's my, but you know, that was my signature bit. That's what, a six-minute bit or something yeah. like that. And, you know, I got a bit in my, I have a, I don't know if I can even call it a bit. It's like in my next special that I will be doing, which is probably 20 minutes long. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a long story yeah. and it goes, it becomes, yeah. it like spins off to this bit and then comes back to the original but story. And, but that, I think, happened pretty organically. I think that, I do remember one breakthrough bit for me it's actually kind of a hacky bit, but it was in terms of structure, it became a really mm-hmm. a breakthrough bit, which is about dating profiles on MySpace. Okay, just sure. to, just to date things, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was a little bit mean and harsh. I wouldn't like want it on TV. Yeah. But it what it was was it was a thing that had like all these different like started one place, went to another, became this long story. It's something about like apparently there's a little bit of confusion about what you're picture on your profile is supposed to look like supposed to look like what your fucking face looks like yeah not some magic trick you played on a camera to fool <laughs> it into thinking you were attractive i mean it's harsh yeah. it was a harsh yeah, joke yeah, yeah. i'm not saying it's not hard but i had all these like little intricate details like you know what was it to fool it into thinking you were attractive um the butter something about butter on the lens and you know you put the camera up on the the first day of the spring equinox right when the when the sun hits yeah. the keyhole which was a hobbit yeah. uh, reference <laughs> sure. and it it just became this bit of like deepest intricacy and and it kept going and was got harsher and harsher but the point of it all was i thought that was a breakthrough bit for me in terms of the way that i wrote jokes yeah. which is this unique style i think of like these hyper dense you yeah. know
0: was it partly that because it seeming was like a hackish concept i mean if you did it today with like because now everyone doing internet exactly. dating jokes but is it that like oh I need to make sure that
1: this joke is at least somewhat interesting or is it just like I honestly I don't I don't know it. I'm not positive it was a hack concept at the time yeah right I think that or maybe it, it's possible that it was I and mean, this idea yeah because it was the early days of MySpace where I mean the idea stems from not not a not a groundbreaking idea which is you get a picture from someone <laughs> sure. and you go meet them and you're like. Yeah. But I guess um,
0: less people were meeting each other in MySpace.
1: That's true. Yeah. And I remember there was a rhetorical device in there that was literally designed to get me laid. Literally. And it would go, it was like, you know, I've some some online dating, myspace.com forward slash Kasher, Find me, fuck me. That was yeah. that's literally what I said. And of course it literally worked right. at certain points. So this this dates me. Anyway, I'm not particularly so I'm not saying I'm particularly proud of the bit, but I it spoke to my process as a comedian. This like fast talking rapid fire yeah kind of juggernaut train of bit the sort of other two things which you, you touch on a
0: little bit which is if you've read Dante's Inferno which I have because I'm smarter than you right which very early on you make that claim even though at first you assume they have read Dante's Inferno
1: <laughs> and then
0: sure. the other you know and there's just sort of that anger like do you're aware that you want to feel like you're condescending or not condescending to an audience are you trying to communicate anger to the audience
1: definitely the condescension is deliberate and only works when the crowd is in love with the idea that this like vulnerable idiot Mm -hmm. brilliant idiot or whatever character it is that i'm doing on stage is this like you know i always call it like lowbrow highbrow lowbrow that's like what i that's the area i really love it's like i'm talking about stupid things smartly or smart things stupidly and so the bit obviously if people think that i think that i'm smarter than all of them i things are it's not gonna be a good night at yeah, the office yeah. right but if everybody re- recognizes the inherent kind of like vulnerability of a person stupid vulnerability of a person saying that the fact that they read dante's inferno in college means they're smarter <laughs> than everybody in the room is that you know that if they get a laugh there yes. i'm in a good zone yes they're like essentially you're saying
0: you they have to think of you as low status so that you're trying to be it's, high
1: status. That's, I think that's right, yeah.
0: <laughs> Not that you're like, yeah, I'm a high status person. I'm just like coming here and be like. And
1: anyone who thinks that I'm being serious when I say that, and I've had obviously every internet comment available, it's like they hate me because they think I'm literally going, I'm smarter than all of you. It's like they literally, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I am literally saying that. But yeah, But I'm. anytime I'm saying I'm amazing on stage it's probably because I mean like, I'm not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, it's Jewish history and
0: comedy is tremendous. I, you know, American comedy is really like half Jewish, half black in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So what is your relationship to the history of Jewish comedy, history of
1: Jews and comedy, the history of comedy about Jews? Um, I think that I, uh, I Judaism is a big part of, my background obviously and my 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 reality and the way that i interact with judaism mostly is through things like that i i find i guess i find it really interesting i must because i keep doing it (laughs) to uh lambast the absurdity of anti-semitism or things that i find hateful by just saying them directly as if they are self-evident truths because i think that to me that's the biggest way to lampoon that right and i've gotten an trouble trouble is not the right word but like people again if they think it's real people (laughs) go like yo what are you doing you know like so i i always thought that like anti-semitism racism in general is so completely absurd that the funniest way to point out the absurdity is to interact with it as if it's like it it is true
0: i believe how comedian frames their set is important Mm -hmm. right so and there's a certain expectations that an audience would have, especially when you're starting out, or even if they
1: don't know who you are. Then Moshe Kasher is like,
0: "Oh, it's a Jewish comedian."
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. And you expect more. Yes. The more, like, eh, eh, eh. yeah. <laughs> so my allergies, that kind of.
0: Where it's like Mo- Mark Kasher, I think most people would be like, "Oh, I have no, I have no reading on what this person's going to be." Yeah. And he's, right. and you have no way of confirming or uh, defying an expectation. You're just like neutral. How do you think the fact that you're introduced as Moshe Kasher on stage posed to Mo Ka- Mark Kasher on stage would essentially aff- has affected your career in some way? I didn't
1: change my name for comedy obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I used to make a joke about it. I my, I used to be called like I don't know, whatever, Mark <laughs> Smith, but I ch- I <laughs> yeah, it up to yeah. get make it in showbiz. I changed my name for I guess like identity and spiritual I mean I didn't change my name it's my middle name yeah yeah. and my father never called me anything but Moshe my brother never called me anything but Moshe but uh, the ownership of my name also was about the custody dispute with my mother Mm -hmm. and that became a sort of polarized argument in the house like she only called me Mark but my father only called me Moshe and the whole thing and when I was 16 and sort of getting in touch with my spiritual side and starting to go to raves and yeah. be myself and go to a, a you know went to 12 step groups and stuff raves and 12 step <laughs> yes, groups of course a classic combination <laughs> I finally was like okay this is my true yeah reality of who I am and then years later I started doing comedy
0: yeah so i mean ultimately it's like you are a That's true, and like your comedy is based in the truth that is the same truth that is
1: you being that and at the same time i am i am the kid that was raised in oakland in oakland public schools i'm not some like guy that's like i buy chai (laughs) die i'm a guy i'm an american kid from a secular city
0: You, you mentioned the use of jewish stereotypes and and i think a lot of Jewish people have that. Like, I think there's a long tradition of Jewish people kind of deflating Mm -hmm. Jewish stereotypes. I mean, as a family, a person that has a family that does it, I know, at least I'm aware of it. But as you said, you've toured the country. Do you you notice, do you care if people are laughing at the wrong part of it in the classic, they're laughing at the wrong part of the joke? Uh I mean, I don't know how
1: I would know, except I will say that I will have often had people come up to me after the show. Because one problem with being that comedian, that Jewish comedian that leans into the stereotype as a way of of like deflating it, as you yeah. say, is that, yeah, you're right. Not everybody gets the deflation. They just think it's funny on yeah. its face, you know. Yeah. And so they'll come up to you after the show. I mean, this is so classically true. They come up to you after the show like, hey, you want to hear uh, my best Jew joke? And the answer is a resounding no. Yeah. A hundred percent of the time. I mean, and it's not even like a, a questioning no. Is it? No, I did not. And guess what happens 100 percent of the time. <laughs> I hear that joke. Yeah, yeah, I've never not heard that <laughs> joke. and it is as bad as you think. yeah. but speaking of jokes, I'm reminded that perhaps the, that whole bit stems from a very early street joke that I heard like when I was a little kid, which I always was really tickled with. <laughs> and it's about a guy dies and goes to heaven. And I actually, the original version of the joke is about Catholics versus Protestants, but I'll, I'll just make it a little more universal, make it all religious. A guy dies and goes to heaven and St. Peter or whoever is showing him around and they walk past a, a room and there's a bunch of like people in lotus position mm-hmm. like going home and St. Peter's like yeah that's where the Buddhists are and they keep walking and there's some people bowing before a elephant statue like that's the Hindus they're Indian that's where they are and then they go a little further and there's some Jews shuckling back and forth like those are the Jews over there and then there's this huge wall this giant wall and the guy's are like well, who's in there and St. Peter's like shh that's the Christians they think they're the only ones in here <laughs> we'll be back with more
0: Moshe Kasher You know how last week I said we're doing a live taping of Good One with Bill Burr at Vulture Festival on May 21st? If not, I'll wait for you to go back. Though I think you can understand the rest of this ad from context clues. Now that we're on the same page, I wanted to present you with a special offer, since you're so nice to listen to Good One in this ad and whatever else you listen to. Good One listeners can get 10% off Vulture Festival tickets by entering the code GOODONE10 at checkout, or good Done 10 so G-O-O-D-O-N-E-1, the number 0. Good One Ten. Use it to see Bill Burr and Me or Lennon Parm and Jessica St. Clair from playing House and Me. Other comedy you might enjoy, we're going to have the entire cast of The Carmichael Show, a screening and stand-up set for Demetri Martin's new movie, Dean, a conversation with Trump impressionist Anthony Tabanek in character being interviewed by Gabriel Sherman, a journalist who's actually interviewed Donald Trump, you know, like the the president of the United States. Here are a couple of other new events that are like literally being announced today. The Cast of Love is doing a table read of, like, the craziest episode from the last season. And so Gillian Jacobs will be there. Paul Russ will be there. Uh, Mike Mitchell will be there. And, and Claudio Daugherty. And that, and so we'll, that will happen. And then uh, Roberts Michael will be talking to this another kind of small former SNL writer, Senator Al Franken. Again, Vulture Festival will be held in New York City, May 20th and 21st. You can buy tickets on VultureFestival.com. Use the code GOOD110 to save 10% at checkout and help support the show. We're back with Moshe Kasher. So continuing with kind of that section of the joke, uh, if, you, if you'll if you indulge me, and I think this will be a good way to plug your TV show, sure. problematic and problematic jokes. I want to talk about offensiveness and its use in comedy and it's not use. And this is not me coming from the perspective of I'm offended by jokes. Sure. I tend to not be offended by any jokes, but I'm aware that it exists. You know, in that that secondary kind of there's a part where you go like oh heaven hell's christians things and buddhist things and marijuana and uh something else
1: mar- tofu and mar- so marijuana. marijuana and jews is money and then gold uh, money and muslims then... are yeah <laughs> so listen it i felt it time stamping itself oh interesting you know what i mean in that moment when i go muslim uh, muslims are a submission and high grade explosive i was thinking to myself oh i wonder i don't think i could tell that joke anymore I don't think that we're in the zone yeah. where that joke would fly. And
0: So, but I think in general, you know, why, you know, why do a joke with, in that has a stereotype that some people might be offended by? Like what, and beyond just like, oh, it's funny. Cause you can make jokes about anything, but like, you know, what is it?
1: I mean, to be honest, like that was it. Yeah. I was just looking for the, the, the hardest punchline <laughs> yeah. that was available to me at that time. Now, I've never been a particularly like back o- shy away from a thing because it's a uh, offensive comedian. I've also, you know, I never have been a person that's like, I'm combing my bit to try to find the edgiest zone yeah, so yeah. that I can just, you know, hurt everybody. So, but why tell that joke that way? I don't know. Can you think of a better punchline? <laughs> I mean, not, a, not right
0: now. But I, I, it's hard to know because it's like the joke is built around to have sort of whatever the harshest thing is because you're getting increasingly exactly and then then you put the jewish thing first so it's a sort of like we're all in good fun thing but it's interesting because it's like i think there is a certain sort of raising the stakes that those jokes have and if Mm -hmm. everyone agrees we're in good fun then you're like cool he's raised the stakes but i always am curious because for a joke to raise the stakes it has to assume that someone is offended
1: Uh, that's interesting i never thought of it like that i I mean uh, yeah there is a bit on that on that album, that's like the ground rules bit, you know, yeah, which is which is like, right before, yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, something like, uh, if you were offended, you know, I did a little thinking before my pre-show prayer, and turns out, I don't give a fuck, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. What was it? It's it, like, don't pe- worry. People come up to me, and they'll still... They won't stop people. They'll come up to me, and they'll say, I was uh, very offended by what you said tonight. And I go, oh, well, I was just kidding. The whole time, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so... But that conversation has changed since that album came out, right? Now there's this whole new conversation, which as a comedian, I got to say I love, (laughs) which is about like, you know, intent is not about, it does not equal impact. And, you know, that excuse won't fly anymore that you were kidding, you know, jokes are destructive and blah, blah, blah. Now I'm not on board with that argument (laughs) that jokes are are destructive to to humanity. I think that there are bigger issues and I don't think that, I I do not necessarily ascribe to the belief that jokes perpetuate violence and 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 racism i think that they they lampoon them most of the time yeah but but i'm not saying i could be wrong about that yeah i'm not a a sociologist or an expert and i'm and you know as i once heard bill mars say a person who everybody finds very (laughs) offensive yeah whatever is good for me as a citizen is bad for me as a comedian Mm -hmm. um and i thought that was a really interesting point like i will i'll give an example of like if i were to tell that joke now would I do the high-grade explosive? I might just leave that part out. Every religion has its thing, you could cut... That's a pretty easy trim. Yeah. Not because I necessarily think it shouldn't be told. Although, I'm maybe I do. I haven't thought about it in a long time. I yeah. didn't even remember that line was in there. Yeah. But also, I don't think it would work. Yeah. I think it wouldn't work today. I think people will be like, hey, uh, that's... Well, that is part of it, which is, like,
0: the 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 idea that, like, the audience is always right, but audiences are too sensitive these days. It's uh-huh. like... The audience is the audience, right? You can't
1: be like, be different people. Well, I'll give you an example that I've been thinking a lot about lately. So the word faggot. Yeah. Or you can beep that if you do that. (laughs) Uh, When I first started comedy, it was a very, very, very popular word for alternative comedians to use, straight alternative comedians to use about themselves. Yes. Right. It was always this like righteous, I'm on the right side of this conversation because it's always. And in fact, on this album, I have that thing that happened because it really was a situation that happened where these car full of guys rolled by. And they screamed faggot at me and my sh- and three straight friends. And I remember being so amused by my this dude who was like a big kind of tougher man going like, come back here and say that to my face. Like he was so angry. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, those are just like dudes. Like they don't know you. Why is that bothering you? So I it turned into this whole bit about I was gay bashed recently, but I'm not gay. Ha ha ha. And then I say faggot, but I'm always on the right, right quote, unquote. I'm doing yeah. air quotes for the podcast. <laughs> sure. listeners. I'm on the right side of the argument. And it would always be this huge comedy word. Anytime you did that, big laugh, everybody yeah. would love it. And then things started to develop and change. And then all of a sudden you would find a diminishing returns with that word. And then eventually, I mean, look, I'm sure somebody does it and it's really great. Yeah. But uh, I started to find that it was harder to go to that. Well, and now I don't say that I'm not... I don't think it's wrong that I should ever say it. I don't know. But it just doesn't really work as a comedy word. And I think that's probably a really good (laughs) sign for humanity in general that we've all moved to the point where even a person on the right side, air quotes again, of that argument can't use that word. So good for me as a citizen, (laughs) bad for me as a comedian.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's also like I think some comedians and I, I don't necessarily think this is the case with you, but that. There, there's, there's that idea that comedy is agreement or like laugh, laugh as an agreement. Yes. But if you can get someone to laugh at something they don't agree with, it's just like, a, I guess, an impressive feat for someone who does for a sure. lot of comedy.
1: I mean, Patrice O'Neill was the ultimate yeah. example. I used to watch Patrice in San Francisco, which was like, that's a truly great yeah, experience because, yeah. you know, people, some women would walk out, but then you, but then you'd have these leftover, like, you ostensibly probably feminist, yeah. demographically feminist women who just begrudgingly were sitting there going like, "Oh, I hate this," but it is funny. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, this is funny. Yeah. And Patrice was like the great articulator of that point. I'm a, I am only on the side of funny. I, I have no agenda other than is it funny. Yeah. And I, as a comedian, that's my primary agenda. as a As a like citizen and a progressive, I have other agendas. But when I get on stage, like I don't really care about. I, I, I care about offending people only in as much as I don't want to hurt people's feelings in general as a human and I don't want to alienate crowds as a comedian. Yeah. So I will tell the joke that it has integrity to me. Kind of on the other side of that, which is it
0: ends up being kind of the second part of the joke, as, as the album is um you talk about YouTube comments to a version of the joke. Uh-huh. Um which on a side note you say Recently, that YouTube that joke was on the front page of YouTube, but it was three years ago. <laughs> and I, I mean, there's
1: some. What's funny is when you analyze a joke this deeply, you start. I start to see the the bullshit parts. Like yeah. my mom, I yeah. realized like, oh, that's funny. Like it's a very effective bit to say your mother on the car. I mean, yeah. everybody loves it, but it was just couldn't be further from the truth. I was recently on the front page of YouTube. I just said recently, everybody, the funniest part about stand-up is when somebody, goes, when somebody goes, a crazy thing happened to me today and a comedian in the back of the room will always look to his comedian buddy But be no, nah, I don't think that happened today. This bit's a little too developed for this <laughs> yeah. to have happened today. The,
0: the only time, and, and I think maybe I've seen it since, Hannibal, I think on his first or second album goes... Uh, two weeks ago or two weeks ago when I started writing this bit that's great that's
1: really a nice like deconstruction of that <laughs> phenomena yeah
0: so and I assume we just you said recently the first time you're like well recently is the word that starts this bit
1: yeah exactly <laughs> I think that's it these bits they become codified without your consent yeah you know they you look back and you go oh it's oh that's that's how I know how to make it funny is with this with this rhythm and if I try to undo the rhythm it's like and why like who cares right I don't know <laughs> but it's real
0: you know i, I I think with YouTube comments, I think in general, and I, you know, what what inspired you to have that portion of that sort of coda to the joke, which is like you making fun of these people that are making fun of you.
1: Well, I mean, it's not terribly sophisticated. I, the the bit went on YouTube, and it was the first thing I ever had even go mildly viral. You know, it's hundreds of thousands of views before that was a commonplace occurrence, and I was really excited by that and of course it's a divisive bit obviously and so i like and this was before i learned the lesson never read the comments although maybe i should read the comments cuz it turned into a classic bit <laughs> but um the comments were so funny to me all those comments are totally real and i just found wow. them so funny i mean the one where he says black people <laughs> is just like so weird that was one of the comments was just black people just just black people yeah. no, no 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 further commentary
0: i mean uh, you know comments are an extreme example of this but I, th- I think now knowing kind of the career that you've had since it, and I think it's interesting when stand-ups do that, is like a stand-up or comedy that tries to create conversations or trying to be a conversation. I th- I think some stand-ups try to think as if they're having a conversation with the audience, but the audience isn't speaking. Mm-hmm. With that, with Houndtall, your podcasts, with uh, Problematic, you know, what is your relationship to your stand-up as a a frozen thing that is just you monologuing and or you and your desire to have people kind of be talking about the things that you're talking about
1: well have you ever seen me live yes i mean i would say my my road show or whatever is probably 40 to 60 percent crowd interaction yeah with this backbone of the material coming in to kind of lay the firmament of the show so uh the i that's how i enjoy to perform I, I mean i love i was thinking to myself listening to that clip i was like damn this crowd is insanely hot by the way i mean i was like wow they are, it well, is the loudest crowd that i think i've ever heard. it's real good it's part of that is the acoustics of the sure. space part of that is that there was no people there i bombed terribly and we put uh, <laughs> sure. seinfeld's laughs in after but um I don't no know,
0: i do think all specials should have louder laughs
1: it oh might. yeah, it sounded great. I was <laughs> I was thrilled, and I rem- I was remembering sensually remembering what happened that night. It was a, such a good night of comedy for me. But anyway, because it was my special, I was kind of monologuing, and I can do that because I have these long bits. But really, how I enjoy telling my I enjoy doing my act is mm-hmm. really interacting with the crowd because I think crowds have a lot of stories to tell. And if I, I always say if I don't find that story, it's because I didn't find it, not because it wasn't there. With my show you know part of the 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 show's premise is that the crowd can get involved and can be part of the thing they can ask questions donahue style and they can get into the muck i mean basically the show is you know but the show's very different than my stand-up the show is much more similar to my podcast sound tall where we get an expert on and get a panel of comedians to kind of riff over that expert mystery science theater style as i call it like a ted talk meets mystery science theater and this is like a lot more like that the show problematic on comedy central we delve into a very deep substantive social issue Mm -hmm. topic cultural appropriation how the internet is changing your brain islam and we try to make a comedy show about it and we try to have real conversations about it
0: you you couldn't have been imagining one day i'm going to be this type of comedian who then would have this type of tv show but that's true so eventually this tv show had to be the tv show that you had you know what was if you look at it your career now as some sort of trajectory. Not that you set out to do, but kind of post looking at it, what was it about the stand-up that you were doing that got you to this point?
1: The through line, now that I'm thinking of it, is highbrow, lowbrow. That's been the that's been the throughbrow, uh, the throughbrow. Yes. Uh, that's been the unibrow <laughs> the of my brow whole, of of my whole career is talking about big t- big things and smart things in a in a silly way and vice versa, and so you 're right when I started comedy I got to tell you, like my first year of comedy i didn't the idea that what I was doing in open mics and coffee shops in San Francisco had anything to do with what like Robin Williams was doing mm-hmm. i didn 't even occur to me i did i some people were more ambitious and motivated than me, and they did see that line i didn't i just there was no connection and then slowly I started to see that that connection was there, and then I eventually like wanted that connection so much that I moved to l a uh, again, like I said, I didn't grow up with dreams of being a stand up I grew up with dreams other dreams, you yeah. know, and this kind of fell fell in my lap. But what I care about is having a good time and having fun and laughing, and I also really care about conversations and talking about concepts that are difficult and challenging and 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 you know interesting and unique and I think the bit actually speaks to that, so that's what the show is, and that's what a lot of my stand up is based around is having a good time and kind of like talking to the top of people's intelligence yeah. while appealing to the base of their genitals. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I watched some is the goal
0: is the goal that someone leaves with an answer is the goal that people are entertained and then maybe they've taken away something, you know, how, you know, what is the balance that you hope the show sh- strikes regardless of, you know, what it does. And obviously the show that's so specific takes maybe sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, but in, in three years, let's say it works and not, you know, what is working for something like this?
1: For my show, I'm not necessarily interested in like a, a a rhetorical kind of answer. I think that a lot of shows have been working on, you know, the rhetorical answer of don't elect Donald Trump for a long time and it didn't mm. really work. Yeah. So I'm not really trying to change the political landscape. I'm more trying to like delve into big conversations in a way that's fun. And the takeaway from anything I hope would be like that. Wow, that was really interesting. I got I know more about that topic than I did before, and I had a really nice time. Mm-hmm. And also that, and I had a really fun time laughing at that topic. Yeah. And also, first of all, it's very difficult to get like a substantive takeaway in a 22 minute show. So what I think we've done in our show really well and nimbly is find a way to balance, you know, fast paced comedy with like deep dives into into sophisticated. Yeah. Type- conversations that aren't boring for a comedy central audience so i'm pretty excited actually about it and uh what i want people to take away mostly i guess is that you can have conversations about any topic and that you shouldn't shy away from topics because they make you uncomfortable
0: yeah I i think what's what's interesting is you know in the episode i saw the moment where you would like here's the takeaway and then you kind of don't do a clear answer is the takeaway is not Here's the answer to a thing, but here's the path to that thing. Now this, sure. this seems really religious. Now but... that you now that
1: you've looked into this, now you know. I mean, there's no way for me to give you the answer in 22 minutes yeah. unless I'm like a prognosticator like standing on a soapbox with a very specific agenda which I don't necessarily have I assume you're talking about the cultural appropriation episode and that is a perfect example of something that doesn't really have a takeaway message because cultural appropriation is a very difficult conversation to find an answer about and I think that's the answer to that particular thing that we came to is like there isn't an answer here cultural appropriation most, most specifically is not about like Uh, don't do this, do this. Although that's the framework of that conversation always. It's like the absurdity of a person. like Don't borrow from culture and then like you go eat Indian food, right? So there's no way around that inherent like fatal flaw of the argument. And so really what we talked about in the episode is like, this isn't really about making rules. It's about understanding why people are upset. Yeah. So in that way, I think we did get somewhere cool with it. But yes, it's a 22 minute show. So we can only go. (laughs) Yeah. And if you did have an answer, just the entire tone would be so like glib and like, P.S. There was an answer bit that didn't make the final cut that, you know, I was into the message of it, but it just came off really sanctimonious. You know, it was essentially this idea that, uh, you know, some accusation. Yes. Some accusations of of cultural appropriation are totally ridiculous. And you can look at a black guy and go, look, that dude's wearing khakis and go, that's cultural appropriation, too. But to you, it's just khakis right it's mm-hmm. not a thousand li- death by a thousand racist cuts sure. it's not a lifetime of weird indignities it's just khakis and khakis are cool but they don't carry the weight of american history some version of that but it yeah. came off a little bit like yeah, it's i'm mark much. twain
0: yeah and i think then it, it it reverse frames the previous conversation as like devaluing the other viewpoints which i yeah. think what's interesting is there's different point of views and ultimately you talk to different people and their response to it will help give everyone a more nuanced understanding of this thing which is Ultimately, the best
1: case scenario. My primary goal in this, and I've been thinking about this passage all week long from this in the AA big book. I don't know why that applies, <laughs> but it, I've been thinking a lot about this passage, which is the line to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. And it's talking about the process of uh, resentment and when you're angry at someone, all you ever do is think like, well, that person hurt me and that's the end of the introspective period Mm -hmm. of this. But if you get past that part, then you can start to get into what's really going on. So that's what's really become of American uh, discourse is all we do is go like, oh, but that person's wrong and that's when we stop listening. And I really think that that's when we ought to start. (laughs)
0: That sound means it's it's time for the laughing round, which is uh, like a lightning round, but because it's it's comedy, it's a laughing round. That's very clever. <laughs> hey, thanks. Yeah, funniest rap lyric you can think of. It doesn't have to be funniest ever. Just whatever one that comes to mind. So it's no pressure that
1: people. You know, I always I one rap lyric I've always really appreciated from Too Short. I, as a white kid growing up in Oakland, you always really clung to these sorts of sentiments. Too Short once said, "There's no such thing as an Oakland punk." It don't matter who you are, you'll be in the trunk. And I really, I just prayed to that concept to be true for many years. Uh, this one comes from
0: a listener. He, he goes by Dusty Husky on Twitter, but that could be a name. Maybe it's Dustin. This is a version of a question. Do you have a joke that at any point that you're aware was bad or hack, and it might be still now that you kind of have and you're, that you still do because it kills?
1: Well, I'll, okay, I'll say this. There's a bit that I have right now that um, that the... The whole thing culminates in me saying, "Mom," right? And I know, and I know that people have an issue with that framework. Mm-hmm. It's this whole bit about the the uh, concept of the phrase "Are you trying?" And I set this whole long bit up about yeah. my mother and her lack of sexual boundaries. Now she brought me to like a vibrator shop when I was like <laughs> young to buy me lesbian uh, text based erotica, rather lest I fall into the oppressive uh, regime of mm-hmm. p- pornography. It's whole long bit about how inappropriate my mom sec- is sexually. And then it go- then later I do this bit about, are you guys trying? And how invasive a question that is, you know? And yeah. how there's all this sexual backstory and it becomes very, very vulgar. You know, and, you, know are you guys trying? Are you fucking a whole lot? It goes into this very vulgar thing. Yeah. And then at the end it goes, uh, yeah, mom, we're fucking trying. <laughs> and, and I know that people, sometimes people are like, mom. But I'm like, that's the best end of the yeah. joke and it has integrity. And I'm not willing to stop. What's the first joke you can
0: remember and the last joke that you're currently working first on? First stand-up joke that yeah. I did?
1: It's actually on my special. I put it in there as a little Easter egg. And it's the schizophrenic pride joke. That's the first joke that I ever wrote. It's this idea that homosexuality used to be considered a psychological aberration, but then we now are, realize that it yeah. isn't. How cool would it be if things that we currently think are psychological aberrations are a part of the framework of society 50 years from now? Specifically, how cool would schizophrenic pride we can be? That's like a...
0: It's a pretty sophisticated so High level first joke
1: <laughs> The second joke You should have heard though I think that was something To do with like You ever notice When people burp Their burps smell like salami That's why I've been eating Nothing but salami So the next time Some punk motherfucker Is like uh, That smelled like salami I could be like That's cause it is So You know I had a good first one And then we did a Deep 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 Fall from grace
0: That is That is truly uh, Different That is high brow low brow. <laughs> I think that might Just be low brow That's it for this week's episode of Good One. Moshe Kasher's Problematic airs Tuesdays on Comedy Central. His memoir, Casher and the Rye, is available, you know, wherever you buy books. Follow him on Twitter, at Moshe Casher. Good One is produced by Jordan Bell. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on iTunes. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to GoodOnePodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one.